Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to our study of Revelation. God is surely going to bless us for choosing to study this book of Scripture. And in fact, he makes that promise to us from the very first chapter. Revelation is unique among the books of the New Testament. It doesn't contain historical accounts like the Gospels or Acts, nor does it reflect the teaching of the various epistles. Revelation is more like the prophetic books of Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It's the record of a vision God gave to the Apostle John while he was in prison around the year 95 AD. After the resurrection of Christ and the beginning of the church, opposition to Christ's followers grew and persecution of believers became widespread. The Roman Emperor Domitian ordered the arrest of the Apostle John for preaching the gospel in Ephesus and had him exiled to prison on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It was there that John received this revelation from the Lord. Some of what John saw was frightening and hard to understand for him as well as for us. But there was also great encouragement in what God showed him because the Lord showed John clear visions of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, reigning supreme over all the nations and over all the affairs of men. Many people shy away from looking at the book of Revelation because they think it's full of hidden mysteries and that it cannot be understood, so they don't even want to try. But in fact, the title of the book and its opening verse tell us just the opposite. The word in Greek for revelation is apocalypsis, which is the root of our English word apocalypse. We normally associate the word apocalypse with destruction and disaster, but the Greek word actually means a revealing, and it has within it the idea of lifting a cover off of something. God is uncovering his plan for the future, and we're able to see that which was previously hidden, and we're able to partake of it. Of course, just because God intends to reveal something does not necessarily mean that we'll find it easy to understand. We may have to do some work. For instance, we'll need to refer back to the Old Testament to understand some things. The book of Revelation is made up of 404 verses, and 278 of those verses refer to things mentioned in the Old Testament. The book is also filled with symbolism, which we'll need to interpret if we're to understand. God wants us to consider his word, to spend time in it, to understand what it means, and to order our lives according to what it teaches. As we do that, we develop our relationship with him, and he has promised that when we seek him with all our hearts, he will be found by us. 
So I'd encourage you not to get involved in any internet searches on the topic of end times as we go through the study, but rather focus on what God says in his word directly. The Lord declares in Daniel 2:28 that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And as we commit to studying his word, he will reveal his truth to us. So let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. From the very first, it's clear the revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But there are two different meanings to that phrase, and both are important. First of all, it's a revelation from Jesus. It is his, and he is doing the revealing. He's uncovering it for his servants, and he's showing the things that must soon take place. But secondly, it's the revelation about Jesus Christ. He is being revealed himself, so that we see him for who he truly is, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In these verses, John tells us that the message was delivered to him by one of God's angels. Now, the Greek word for angel, angelos, simply means a messenger or one who is sent from God. John then identifies himself as being Christ's servant, who is testifying concerning everything that God made known to him. And in verse 3, John tells us of God's promise. And in verse 3, John tells us of God's promise concerning this book. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. This is the only book of the Bible that comes with a promise of blessing for just reading it or hearing it. And so we should be encouraged to get into it. We should also notice that God clearly tells us that this is a prophetic message and that will affect how we read and interpret it. For example, the time element in prophecies is often different. If you studied Daniel with me, I said in that class that biblical prophecy is rather like looking at a mountain range. When you look at a mountain range, it appears to be one solitary thing. But when you inspect it more closely, you see that there are peaks in the foreground that are separated from mountains behind them by great valleys. Biblical prophecy is often similar. A vision may have the appearance of being all one thing, and yet it usually applies in part to the time in which it's spoken, in part to times soon to come, and often there is an even further dimension to it as well. In addition, we have to pay careful attention to the symbolism of prophecy, realizing that God often communicates in pictures to help us understand a deeper truth. We need to take to heart what the Lord says, for though there are many fascinating subjects to explore in the book of Revelation, God wants its message to change us, not just intrigue us. 
The end is near. It's time to pay attention to what he's told us and live accordingly. Verse 4 and 5 tells us that God himself is sending the message through his servant John to seven churches in the region. Look at verse 4 where we learn that this letter is being sent from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We'll soon learn that these seven churches or groups of believers were found in the towns along the mainland postal route of the time. We will study these in more detail later, but notice how he begins by greeting these groups with the words grace and peace. Now, the use of those two words is important as Christians of the time used those different words of greeting according to which background they'd come from. Those who were born as Gentiles usually used the word grace to greet each other, whereas followers of Jesus from a Jewish background would use the traditional Jewish greeting of peace or shalom. By using both greetings, the Lord is underscoring that this prophecy is for all Christ followers irrespective of their background. It is a communication to the whole church, and it comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. We'll see this description or title of God often in the book of Revelation, and it emphasizes his unchanging eternal being, just as when God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament as the great I am. He is the eternal one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How encouraging that would have been to the Christians to whom this letter was originally sent. They were facing times of trial and hardship. It was a time of great persecution. And so from the beginning, God reminded them that he never changes, no matter how their circumstances might. In verse 4 and 5, we also see the Trinity revealed because the message comes from God the Father, the ever-present one, the seven spirits before his throne, which we'll see is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and also from Jesus Christ. In these opening verses, we begin to encounter the symbolism that I spoke of when we see the seven spirits before God's throne. The number seven will be repeated several times through the book of Revelation. In scripture, the number seven is often used to symbolize perfection and completeness. For example, on the seventh day of creation, God rested as his work was complete. Now, I appreciate that the seven spirits before God's throne may seem strange to us, but it might help us to understand that the phrase can also be translated the sevenfold spirit before God's throne. This spirit is complete in its perfection, and it is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 5 reveals more about Jesus through three descriptive titles. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
Jesus is the faithful witness. The Greek word for faithful means that he can be trusted. Even when others let us down, our trust in Jesus is never misplaced. He can be counted on to reveal the truth about God. He is also the firstborn from the dead. Now, I know that a question might come to your minds because Lazarus and others in the gospel were raised from the dead by Christ. But remember, they were raised to the same life with the same earthly body that they once had, and they all went on to die again at some future point. Christ, however, was the first to be resurrected from the dead. He was the first to receive his resurrection body, which is more glorious than the body we currently have, and he lives forever. Jesus is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, despite all that we see around us today, we can rest assured that no earthly prince or ruler is above Jesus. For ultimately, Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice what John tells us in verse 5 about this glorious eternal ruler of everything and everyone. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Jesus, the faithful, glorious, all-powerful, resurrected King of Kings, loves us. The new call on our lives to be kings and priests in his kingdom begins with his amazing love for us. We cannot hope to earn God's favor by our own works. According to James 2.10, we can keep the whole law of God, but if we stumble at just one point, if we break the smallest command, we are guilty of breaking all of it. God's standard for holiness is higher than we can attain. We all miss his mark of perfection. We're all blemished by sin. But because of God's great love for us, Christ came to set us free from the chains of sin that bound us. All sin has a price that must be paid. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus, the sinless one, died on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood, not for any fault of his own, but for you and for me. The punishment that we deserve was upon him, and as we ask for his blood to cleanse us, we become part of God's kingdom. Jesus has done two things for those who trust in him. He has given us royal status, for now we are children of God with authority in his kingdom, and he also made us priests. In the Old Testament, the priest was the only one allowed to approach God. Others had to stop at some outer court of the temple. Now, in Christ, we have access to God's presence. We can boldly approach his throne of grace to find help in our time of need. For Jesus has opened up a new and living way into God's presence through his blood. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 confirms that as believers in Christ, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people belonging to God.
Priests are also ministers of God's love to others, and everything we do is to be for his glory and power forever and ever. Amen. There in his prison cell, John recalled the Old Testament promises of God about Christ's certain return, saying, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Drawing from prophecies in Daniel and Zechariah, John encourages us to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven, a spectacular event that will be witnessed by all and welcomed by those who love him. But here John reminds us of another group, those who've rejected Jesus, and he describes them as the people of the earth saying that at Christ's second coming, they'll mourn because he will bring judgment against them. Then in verse 8, God reveals himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the one with authority over all. John goes on, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. By calling himself their brother, John fully identifies with these hard-pressed Christians on the mainland. He is their companion in suffering. John had lost not only his friends, but all of his rights and property when he'd been imprisoned on Patmos for preaching God's word about Christ. He was in a very lonely and difficult situation with no hope of deliverance. But even there, he could worship God in the spirit. And as he was worshiping, God gave him a vision of things to come, telling him to write it down in the form of a letter of encouragement to seven churches on the mainland. What was first revealed to those churches and now to us today is a picture of Jesus Christ. We're going to see many pictures of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation, but here at the very beginning, we see a picture of him as high priest over all those who belong to God. As we read the description of Christ, remember to expect the text to be highly symbolic. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John turns to see seven golden lampstands, but we have to wait to find out what these and the seven stars are. 
in the midst of the lampstands, he sees someone like a son of man. Now, the King James Version reveals this key individual to be someone like the son of man, which is a title for the Messiah from the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus also frequently used the title Son of Man when referring to himself in the Gospels, and every time he did, he was purposefully declaring that he was the Messiah whom God the Father had promised to send. In fact, Daniel's description of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is a lot like John's here. We learn from Revelation 1.13 onwards that this person is clothed in a garment reaching down to his feet. And from the word that is used here, we know it's the same garment worn by the high priest who would also have worn a gold breast piece. So this is all a symbol of the high priestly character and work of Jesus our Lord. The Jewish high priest was a man who himself had access to God and who opened the way for others to come to the Lord. Even now, in heavenly places, Jesus, our great high priest, is still carrying on his priestly work, opening the way for all who trust in him to come into the presence of God. But unlike any other high priest, Jesus is both our mediator and God himself. Verse 14 says that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. As seen in Daniel 7, this is no ordinary white. It's a blazing, glowing white, symbolizing not only Christ's divine purity, but also his great age, his eternal existence from ancient times. John describes Christ's gaze as one that penetrates the soul. And quoting Daniel 10 verse 6, he declares that his eyes were like blazing fire and his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. Everything about Jesus is spotlessly pure. He is radiant in glory. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Water can cleanse you and refresh you. It can quench your thirst but water can also drown you and sweep you away. It all depends on where you are in relation to the water. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword, and without question, that is a symbol of the Word of God, which is able to penetrate the hearts of men. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us the, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Finally, this glorious one's face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. Now, the sun can warm you, it can light your path, but it also can become very uncomfortable if you do not respect its power. We said earlier that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It shows him in a way that he's, he was not revealed in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus came as a servant, but here as a returning king. In the Gospels, he came in humility, but in Revelation, he comes in power. He was the Lamb of God in the Gospels, but in Revelation, he's shown to be both the Lamb of God and the mighty Lion of Judah.
Though we stand in awe of his power, those who belong to him need not be afraid because we're secure in his love. Look at how John is unable to stand in the Lord's presence in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." This Jesus who holds the stars in his hand places his other hand tenderly upon John and encourages him not to be afraid. Christ is above all. Nothing supersedes him. And yet he takes the time to gently reassure his servant. Jesus then makes several statements about himself to John. He declares, I am the first and the last, which is nothing less than God's own description of himself given to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, verse 6. There God declares, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. God is the one who is there at the beginning and he's the one who will be with us at the end. I am the living one. As the living God, death has no hold on Jesus. He is with his people making intercession for them forevermore. He holds the keys of death and Hades. Through his resurrection, Jesus has unlocked those gates and because he lives eternally, so shall those who follow him. As Christ commands John to write down the vision for future generations, he declares in verse 20 that he'll reveal to the apostle the mystery of the stars he holds in his right hand and also the seven golden lampstands. The Greek word for mystery doesn't mean something that's unknowable. Rather, it means something that is meaningless to an outsider, but which has great significance to those who possess the key. And Jesus helps John by giving him the key to understand, saying that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. It may well be that Jesus is saying that he holds in his hand the heavenly messengers assigned to each church, their guardian angels, if you like. But because the Greek word angel is angelos and can mean simply a messenger, these seven stars could also represent the human leaders or pastors of each of the churches. Jesus says that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches themselves. And if you think of it, referring to different groups of Christ's people as lampstands is significant. You see, the lampstands themselves are not the light, but they're holders of the light in a dark place. According to John 8:12, Jesus is the light of the world, but as his church, we hold out the light of Christ to others. The important thing to notice here is that Christ is in the midst 
midst of the lampstands. He's with those who represent him on earth and he holds their leaders in his hand. Not only would this have been encouraging to the believers of John's time who were facing hardship in their churches on the mainland, but it's encouraging for us today too. Christ is with us. He's in our midst. He holds us in his almighty, all-powerful and all-loving hands. The question as we conclude is this, if Christ is with us, are we with him? To enjoy his fellowship and protection, we have to belong to him. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, for his blood to be applied to your debt so you can be forgiven and reconciled to the Father, you need to respond to his invitation. And there's no time like the present to do that. Today is the day of salvation. I remember as a little girl, my dad invited me to go somewhere with him. But I was being difficult and I would not cooperate. I kept telling him to wait, that I would come in a while. I was busy. When I finally was ready to go and went to look for him, he was nowhere to be found. And my mom told me that he'd left without me. It's a memory that is burned into my mind. That day, as I ran out and stood in the empty driveway, looking at the closed gate, I realized that because of my own stupidity, I had missed the trip with my dad. He had invited me. He had wanted me with him, but I had delayed too long. The regret that I felt and the tears that I cried could not change anything. Though I didn't know the verse at the time, that day I understood what the expression, the weeping and gnashing of teeth means in the Bible. My friends, Christ is coming again, returning for his own. He stands with his church even now and wants you with him. Do not miss out on what he offers you. Respond to his invitation and accept the forgiveness and salvation that only he can give. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.